Courtney Astolfi published a story yesterday examining the travels of Mayor Justin Bibb. And we just so happen to have Courtney on the podcast today to talk about that. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Courtney, as well as Layla Tassi and Lisa Garvin. It's a Friday. We've got some stuff to talk about. But first, we did receive a number of emails yesterday from people worried that voters will not go to the polls because we did not list all of the voting times and days. We did a partial list yesterday. So to satisfy that request, which came from multiple people, you can vote in Cuyahoga County from 8 to 5 on weekdays through October 28th. You can vote from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Saturday, October 29th. The weekday hours grow longer from October 31st through November 4th from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. On Saturday, November 5th, you can vote from 8 to 4. On Sunday the 6th, it is 1 to 5. And on Monday, November 7th, the day before Election Day, you can vote in person from 8 to 2. So we've done it. I don't know if anybody's going to listen to that, write it down and go, but a whole lot of people were worried about it. I hope we have put that to rest. Let's begin. How did running in a Joga County park nearly cost a woman her ear because a deer crossed her path? Layla, this gets the honors of the weirdest story of the week. It totally does. Rebecca Heasley from Willowick and her sister Victoria were participating in Joga County Park District's space race in Observatory Park on October 1st. And during the race, they had noticed deer in a meadow nearby, but Heasley said she was wearing earbuds, so she didn't hear that her sister was warning other racers that the deer were kind of taking off, running into the woods, which I assume was potentially onto the race course. So while they were finishing their last loop through the park, Heasley suddenly felt herself get hit with great force. And at first she thought it was maybe another runner slamming into her because everyone was jockeying for position in that final stretch of the race. But then she saw the blood and realized she had been pretty seriously injured. And it turned out to be one of those deer. And somehow her <laughs> this deer had had hit her with its hoof. And she had been severely lacerated. Her ear had been nearly ripped from her head. There was no cell reception on the trail, so they couldn't call for help. So after a moment of panic, there was this group of runners who helped her walk to the finish line where medics were waiting. So she was taken to UH. They stitched her up. They saved her ear. She's recovering well. And, uh, you know, Molly Walsh, one of our newest additions to our reporting staff, interviewed Heasley and and she seems to have a really great attitude about this ordeal. She's really grateful that she didn't lose her hearing or vision. She's grateful she didn't turn her head at the wrong moment and take a hoof to the face. And she says that this incident won't stop her from running and enjoying nature. It'll just become one of those good stories that she has to tell. Well, it's one of the strangest things. I mean, we all have deer in our neighborhoods. You don't think of them as attacking you. And, and this wasn't an attack, but but it... I guess it's just a collision. Is I mean that's what they're I looking don't know. at. I, I wish that someone had seen it because I was thinking like, oh, the the hoof hit her in the ear. That is quite a leap. I mean, I guess deer can jump high, and maybe it was a back hoof kind of taken off. I don't know what are the mechanics of that, but that is quite freakish of an accident. And uh, wow. 
Yeah, it's well, funny. It is, I, I was like, you gave me this this uh, question, and I prepared for this last night, and I woke up this morning, and there were six deer sleeping in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> it's an omen. <laughs> this is the season where they're mating, and mm-hmm. so they're, the males are much more aggressive. And when they do rarely attack a human, they get up on their hind legs and use their front legs to do the attack. But, Ooh, I mean, so if she were that's... attacked like that, I think it would have been much more vicious but I just don't get how you get hit in the head by a, a I guess if it's leaping over you, they can I jump guess. pretty You would have thought what that a... all these deer would have steered clear from the path with all the runner, the runners coming through. You know, that would be enough to keep all the deer at bay, but not this one. I don't know. We walk down sidewalks in my neighborhood with deer within five, six feet. They don't, they just look at us like, what do you want? I mean, I I, they seem like they're fearless. Lisa, you've had deer in your neighborhood for a long time. Oh yeah. And, and this time of year, but sometimes all year round, deer will follow you. I've actually warned dog walkers on my street that there's a deer following them and not shy at all. And I think a lot of it comes from people feeding the deer and thinking that they're tame. I know. Yeah, well, Actually, it makes me wonder why why is why is hunting deer even a sport anymore? <laughs> you could go out and grab one by the <laughs> horns right now. <laughs> yeah, it's a just a, a strange story, and you can read it on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Reporter Olivia Mitchell has a story on a surprising trend in gun ownership. It's a couple of trends, actually. Lisa, what did she find? Yeah, and I'm actually not terribly surprised by this. There is an analysis done by the National Sports Shooting Foundation, and they say that 2022 could be the third highest year for federal background checks since 2019 when gun purchases began to rise. So they found that uh, 33% of buyers were women in 2021. And in another study of the National Shooting Sports Foundation. They basically um, retail or surveyed gun retailers, and they found that a 44% increase in black people buying guns, women included, a 40% increase in Hispanic Americans buying guns, and a 27% increase among Asian Americans. So uh, the public affairs guy for the National Shooting Sports Federation, Mark Oliva says, typical gun ownership has changed. It's much more diverse demographics now. It's skewing younger and more urban. And it's just, you know, the overriding thing is people are now concerned for their personal safety. And the African American Gun Association, which is based in Georgia, its founder, Philip Smith, says that he began this group in 2015 after after the deaths of many blacks at the hands of law enforcement. And he's trying to promote the idea that owning guns and being black is a okay. And he says they have 40,000 national members, 400 of them here in Ohio, and their membership is 60% men and 40% women. So obviously black women are just as concerned about their personal safety as men. Yeah. I, it, I, I mean, you say you're not surprised. Um, I, I, it's just, it's like everybody's got a gun now. We're, we're in a time where we're back in the old West where anybody walking down the street has a gun, but in the old West, you didn't see women with guns that often. So it's even, even more so. I mean, it's, I guess anywhere you go, you got to figure there are a bunch of people around you that have guns in their on them. Right, right. And, you know, and, and blacks have, you know, always been scared. To, I mean, there's a famous video of a white guy walking down the street with an AR-15. The police don't bother him. Black guy walks down the street with the same gun. He gets arrested and thrown to the ground. So I think that black people are afraid that carrying a gun makes them arrestable instead of them trying to protect themselves. 
Well, maybe with the prevalence of them that that will reduce, because you're right, there is a very different treatment. And it's a dangerous treatment because the police, as we've seen, can just decide to shoot. They can shoot you if you're just eating a hamburger in a parking Mm -hmm. lot. It's Today in Ohio. We're coming up on a full year of Justin Bibb as mayor of Cleveland, and while we have not seen a fountain of big ideas, we have noticed that Bibb spends a good bit of time outside of Cleveland. Courtney, you examined his travels and you talked to him about them. What's the story? Yeah, we wanted to take a look at this because, you know, Mayor Bibb has been traveling a lot since he's been mayor. And and to be frank, no pun intended, Clevelanders probably haven't been used to that for the last 16 years. <laughs> the former mayor, Frank Jackson, this wasn't really his thing, but it is Mayor Bibb's thing. And we wanted to know what he gets out of it, why he's doing it, what his strategy is here, and why he finds it important. And, you know, so a lot of a lot of Mayor Bibb's traveling this year has been to these mayor groups that are all over. There's the U.S. Conference of Mayors. He's part of the African-American Mayors Association. There's a lot of different, like, almost like tradey groups for mayors around the U.S., and Bibb's been very involved there. And, you know, he tells us the idea here is to you know, network essentially, connect with connect with movers and shakers and other mayors around the country to get ideas for city policy and to connect with people like such as federal folks. He is also in Washington, D.C. a lot, connecting with federal leaders to help try and bring resources and money home to Cleveland. So that's really his aim here is to, to collect good ideas from all over the country and and make connections so he can bring federal funding and other resources back home. Yeah, we, as part of your your watchdog duties on City Hall, you pulled these records because we wanted to see you know, past people have have abused their travel expenses. And you looked at them and it's not abusive. He doesn't spend ridiculous amounts of money. He's, it's a sane expense report. And then we debated whether to do the story because travel expenses are a red flag. Television stations love to do gotcha stories about them. And we didn't want to do a story that basically said, look at this. How how ridiculous is it he's traveling? On the other hand, we're hearing from readers saying, you know, he's spending a lot of time outside of Cleveland. What's that about? And so I like the way you handled this. We, We lay it all out there for people to see. We have his full explanations in the story but it's not a gotcha. It's not something that says shame, shame, shame. It's just an explanatory story that says, here's what he's doing. Here's what he says about it. I, you know, I would like to see some big ideas coming out of City Hall, but he's not wrong about putting Cleveland on the map. Yeah. And, you know, I thought just kind of one example that he laid out for us about how this this is already helping him like foment and, and think about things he can do here in Cleveland. I really like this example. He said in February, he was at this mayor's meeting. He was talking to the mayor in Austin, Texas and the St. Louis mayor. And they were, you know, staring down what everyone was suspecting was going to be a rollback of Roe v. Wade. And it's like, how can we protect our residents in our city and help, you know, get them to the medical care that they need, even if it's illegal in state. And he said the fruits of that conversation kind of led to to him and Jones. They each pitched the creation of abortion, abortion travel funds in their cities to help residents get out of state and access this care. And it, it seems to be pretty similar to one that was established in Austin, the other guy they were talking about. So that's, that's kind of one example 
of the fruits of, of this networking. You know, others are DC. We'd be remiss here not to mention he's appeared with President Biden now a, a few times. Um, he's met with President Biden five times, he said, since he since he won. And he said a result of those conversations, he's also talked to, you know, the labor secretary, the transportation secretary and others. And he said that's really kind of put a spotlight on how Cleveland's handling its influx of federal stimulus money. And he said the White House, because of these connections, is looking at Cleveland as a, as a model for how this spending ought to, ought to happen. So yeah, he, when you talk about the national stage thing, he says it's important to get eyes back on Cleveland. He says, you know, we've been out of the conversation for 16 years and and it's it's a way to compete, way to compete with our peers such as Pittsburgh, Detroit, Chicago. And, and it's worth noting that mayors from cities all over routinely do this. We just aren't used to it in Cleveland because we haven't seen it in at least 16 years. Well, the danger he faces, though, is he does get attention when he does this. It's news when he appears with the president. Like you said, it's happened a lot. And people see that, but they don't see a whole lot of action to change anything else. He's not. It's not like he's been jumping out with big initiatives and proposals. He's had a few announcements, like he's taking over lakefront planning, but there's no substance there yet. So that's the danger he faces. If he, if he gets all the attention for when he's not in Cleveland, we don't see a whole lot about what he's doing in Cleveland. Then people start to think, is, is he just doing this to run for his next office or is he really here for Cleveland? And you know, we should say it's his first year. It takes a while to build the big initiatives. If he's hard at work inside City Hall, quietly planning things he wants to get done as the second year comes, that makes sense. It's just, it, it, it sets him up for the kind of questions we got from readers. I'm sure I'm sh- you've surely heard that kind of thing from people, right? Questions about his travel. It, it's thrown out there often, different folks you're chit-chatting with who are either, you know, at the city or work with the city. It's, it's, I've heard it more than a lot of other criticisms about Mayor Bibb. Um, That's why I think it was fair that we explored it. People are raising this as an issue. It is a a talking line. So, hey, Mayor, why do you want to do this? Why do you think it's good? Can you explain your reasoning here? If I can jump in. I just wanted to jump in, too. I I, I think the collaboration with other mayors of mid-sized cities is so important, especially around issues like gun violence, affordable housing. I mean, these are things that we as a city had not done well dealing with in a vacuum. So it's I, I, I think that the mayor is correct by reaching out and trying to form these kinds of relationships that can you know, spark some innovation in how those those issues are being dealt with, and and they're they're kind of, I mean, they're across the country. Every every big city is dealing with them. So so I I think it's a great idea. Right, and we took very we took care not to say, oh, look at all the travel he's doing. It's a very you know balanced approach to say this is what he's doing. This is why he says it. It did have the corniest quote of the week. What did he say? If you not don't have a seat at the table, you don't get a meal or something. It was You're on the menu. Yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. It was it was just painful to read that. It's today in Ohio. Akron Canton has fallen on some hard times and the bad news keeps on coming. Layla, what's the latest setback? Well, Susan Glazer brings us this latest news here, and it's that Spirit Airlines is is pulling out of the airport after all. They had suspended service there in June, 
And what's kind of crazy about the story is that earlier in the day on Wednesday, an airport spokeswoman had told Susan that Spirit was simply postponing their return to the airport until May. I think they were supposed to be back in November. And then by the end of the day Wednesday, that same spokeswoman said, well, actually, the story had changed and they're not coming back at all and uh, that they would be they would not be relaunching service to Orlando due to the continuous constraints on their network was how they how the air, airport explained it. Spirit had first launched service from Akron Canton in 2016 with service to five cities. And despite also having a presence at Cleveland Hopkins, the airline did pretty well in both of those locations because they served budget travelers headed to Florida and Las Vegas and Myrtle Beach and uh, other vacation hotspots like that. But then, you know, the pandemic and after the shutdowns, floods of travelers returned to the airports and Spirit and, and other airlines couldn't keep up with that sudden surge in demand. Many travelers were stranded. Remember the story? I feel like that was a lifetime ago, but <laughs> it's all coming back now. So Spirit trimmed its schedule to prevent future operational meltdowns, and that's the suspension of service at Akron Canton was part of that plan. They were supposed to come back, as I said, in November, and that, that got pushed back to the spring, and then it got pushed back to never. <laughs> it's, it seems short-sighted to me because Northeast Ohio's appetite for traveling to Florida, and specifically Orlando, is endless. I mean, there's always going to be demand for flights. And we might, yes, we're in this this temporary blip where it's hard to get workers, but that'll go away and there'll still be the demand and yet they won't have a home in Akron. And Akron is really convenient to fly out of, especially if you got a bunch of little kids. I mean, it, I would so prefer if I had five and a seven-year-old to fly out of Akron to Orlando because it's such a convenient Right. In and out. But, Susan but point, points out that for folks who still want to fly out of Akron Canton, headed to Orlando specifically, Allegiant Air just last week started nonstop service to Orlando Sanford International Airport, which is an alternative airport to the much, much bigger Orlando International where Spirit had been flying into. But I don't know if that comes with any drawbacks. Like, is a, is the yeah, smaller there's airport... a big drawback. It's really far. I live down there. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, Sanford is pretty far north of Orlando. You definitely want to get a rental car. There's not going to be transit taking you there. Now, if you're going um, to Disney World, does Disney World send its shuttles up to that airport no. or no? They, oh, I, I, oh I, man. You know, one of our colleagues is was heading to one of the Disney uh, uh, parks this weekend and said that he was shocked to find that in Orlando, Disney stopped the airport shuttle, Nuh-uh. which he thought was crazy because if you Even don't to Orlando car, International? Yeah. Even to the yeah. big airport? Oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah. And he said, you know, think about that. If you're forced to rent a car, then you can leave the Disney grounds. But if Disney picks you up and brings you over, you're kind of stuck there. So he was surprised. So he went to the California Disney Park because <laughs> it was easier to get in and out of. It's today in Ohio. Hey, we were talking about Justin Bibb, the Cleveland mayor. One of his motives lately is to get out from under the consent decree that has Cleveland police operating under federal oversight. Not happening anytime soon, is it, Lisa? Yeah, it certainly won't. And it may not even happen until 2026, as late as that. So city attorneys for Cleveland attempted to end the consent decree, but that was denied by federal Judge Solomon Oliver in hearings earlier this week. And in fact, Judge Oliver extended oversight of Cleveland Police Department reform for two more years. And so what happens, though, once once the judge is okay with them being in compliance, 
they enter a two-year probation phase after compliance is reached. So like I said, this could extend to 2026. Uh, Mayor Justin Bibb was hoping that they would be out of the consent decree by 2025, which by the way, would mark the 10-year mark for this 2015 agreement. And that would also signal the end of his first term, but that ain't happening. Uh, Department of Justice Attorney Michelle Heyer says that the city's claims of progress on the 2015 decree in a September hearing were quote, hyperbolic at best. And Oliver, in his two-page ruling, says that clear progress has been made in the police department, but it's not yet substantial or effective enough for him to, you know, release them from the decree. He says they still have to change several policies and demonstrate that these changes are actually working. I'm a little bit surprised that he's made this such a priority. Having a monitor overseeing the police department has kept the police department in line. How many stories have we done of the monitor releasing a report saying, wow, look at how flawed this is. They're, they're not fixing this yet. And then there's all sorts of talk about fixing it. Once this is over, there won't be any of that. And you won't have that close scrutiny. And Let's remember, Bib ran pushing for the citizen commission that will oversee discipline. You know, I he he ought to be glad there's somebody looking at it. Is he going into a protectionist mode? Like, oh, now that I'm mayor, I have to protect the police department. Feds get out of here. Or maybe he thinks this new civil commission that was spurred by the consent decree will take care of everything. And by the way, have they mentioned the finalists for this commission yet? We we do not. The interviews have been ongoing. Councils put forth their picks, but we don't have anyone on the commission at all seated yet, which means it can't start its work until a majority of folks have been named. So we're just it, we're in October. We're just still waiting for them to stand it up. Yeah, I, I'm glad the consent decree is going to last into the foreseeable future. I think it's been a very good thing. And once you take away that oversight, I worry about what happens next. It's Today in Ohio. With a lot of infrastructure and stimulus cash available as a result of the pandemic, what big and expensive step is the Port of Cleveland taking to get a vision for one element of the lakefront shovel-ready? Courtney. Yeah, the Port of Cleveland announced yesterday that its board signed off on a nearly $4 million contract, 3.75, with a global design firm, Arup, I believe, Engineering. And, and and this contract would really kind of lay the groundwork for what would need to happen to make this vision a reality. The design firm would, would design this lakefront project that would be located east of Burke and near Gordon Park. Um, essentially would build an aisle out in Lake Erie using sediment from the Cuyahoga. And um, the, the kind of the goal here is to protect the shoreway from weather. But at the same time, you'd also be creating 70 to 80 new acres, you know, wetlands, hills, walking trails, a place to launch paddle craft, and really bring much more Lake Erie access to Cleveland's east side, which has historically been shut off to the kinds of amenities close to the lake the way the west side has. So this so this contract that the board or that the port's moving forward on will 
really tee up, it, it would make essentially the project shovel ready. And that means that it makes it a much more viable candidate for, for grant funding and to start collecting the funds that would be needed to see it through. And and this firm would also, as they get going with the design process, begin seeking needed permits from folks like the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which is a, a whole to-do. So this is kind of the baseline work that everything would, would launch from. It's odd that we're calling it shovel ready because what this really means is putting up a bunch of steel walls and dredging the river and dumping sludge into the steel walls until there's enough to be an island. But it sounds like the key is the permits, that you can't start doing any of this until you get all of these permits we're talking about. And by spending this money, they get the permits done so they are ready, right? Yeah, yeah. The hope is that they can get initial permitting documents into the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers by next summer, hopefully. And then that kind of opens up the timeline going forward. The earliest, they say, where you could actually start seeing some of that sludge being moved and the project actually happening would be 2025. But make no bones about it, this is going to be a years-long, huge to-do, and it could it could take three decades, they're saying, to see all the way through. Yeah, I don't remember how long it took for Dyke 14, which is further to the east, uh, but that was another long-term project that now it's filled with birds and things. But you're right, it's going to be 30 years before the full benefit of that. But you got to have vision. If you want to have something 30 years from now, you got to start it now. Cool project, and it's smart for them to get moving on it uh, while there is money available. It's Today in Ohio. What's the potential penalty for a guy who admits being the leader of a crew that stole plenty of high-end cars in Cleveland and swapped them with a crew in Detroit? Lisa, we don't talk a lot about crime, but the, the, the audacity of what was happening here makes this worth talking about. And there were like it was like a multiple criminal ring, too. A 21-year-old Hakeem Benjamin of Cleveland Heights pled guilty in Akron Federal Court yesterday to one count each of conspiring to steal cars and possess a stolen car. That brings a possible sentence of up to three to seven years, and there's no sentencing date yet, but that'll be in Judge Sarah Leoy's court. Uh, Benjamin is accused of being part of a crew that stole over a half a million dollars worth of high-end Dodge and Jeep models, mostly the Jarge Chargers or Hellcats or whatever, the the high-end performance cars. And the cars that were stolen in Cleveland were swapped with cars that were stolen in Detroit or they were just sold on the street. And this this gang used what's called a ProPad device that stole data from car key fobs and then copied it. What they would do is they would do this during a test drive at a dealership. They would steal the information, come back at night, and then steal the cars. Uh, Benjamin and three others were arrested May 31st. The others were Lavelle Jones, Devin Rice, and Jalen Harris. They all pled not guilty, and they're going to trial next March. And Jones led a crew that also was stealing mail from Cleveland area mail carriers. They also stole mailbox keys. And so they would get into these uh, mailboxes, steal checks, and then rewrite them. So forge the checks. But Benjamin was not involved in the mail enterprise. That was mostly under Devin Rice. But the two, you know, the two crimes were kind of connected through this gang. Once these guys are all finished with their court proceedings, I hope they'll talk to us because I think there's one hell of a story 
about this criminal enterprise. This was organized crime in many ways. These guys were thoughtful and very strategic uh, and had, like I said, incredible audacity. And the numbers, the dollars that they managed to get uh, are incredible. People are still afraid to go to mailboxes. Actually, at Cleveland Heights Post Office, they're still roped off because they can't secure them because those keys are out there. And so you have to go inside the post office to to mail things. Yeah. And I've been doing that. I mean, one time I rolled up on my mail and they were emptying the mailboxes. I rolled up and so I gave them my mail. But yeah, I hate to have to get out of my car and, you know, do it, but I'm doing it because I don't want my checks stolen. There are lots of reports out there of people getting ripped off because of this very scheme. I know. Scary stuff. That's why that's why we're talking about it. It's today in Ohio. Wrapping up Friday with a happy story. Jane Maurice, a reporter and social media guru on our team, has a new series of columns she introduced about something going on in her personal life. Layla, this is part of our effort to give readers something lighter. We've been focused on all of the news that makes them worried, and we've had less of the kind of stories we did in the old days when we had a huge staff. Laura's been writing about her house. We've had the Kins box on their RV trail. And now Jane Maurice is going to put a little bit of herself out there. What's it about? Well, Jane is getting married. Yay! She and her fiancé, Tom, got engaged in March, and they're getting married sometime in 2023. So they're planning a wedding right here in Northeast Ohio. And as many couples will likely tell you these days, that's a really, really big deal. (laughs) Jane writes in her column that the average cost of a wedding today is about $27,000. And the planning it requires is really extensive and often very stressful. I imagine it's extra stressful to be trying to get the most out of your wedding budget when inflation is what it's been lately. So so as she embarks on her personal wedding planning journey, Jane is inviting readers along in a series of columns, detailing it all in the hopes that readers will find it both relatable and enlightening and helpful if if they too are, you know, facing this daunting challenge of putting together the event of their lifetime. And in her opening column, she says that this series will talk about the cost of the event, but also the selections they're making, you know, where where they will embrace tradition and where they will find ways to personalize it. And, and she won't be sharing exactly where or when her wedding will be held and and she won't name her vendors. And if there are any horror stories to share, she's going to hold off on sharing those until after her big day has come and gone. But uh, like you said, I think this is just going to be uh, one of those lighthearted offerings that uh, people will be able to connect to in a way that's not tragic news. Well, people do enjoy reading about other people's experiences with weddings, especially those who are contemplating or planning it. Right, Courtney? Ah. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> I I did talk to Jane, you know, oh, just boy. to make sure that she's got a thick skin because there are haters out there. And when you put yourself out there the way she is, she's going to get some mean-spirited notes. And she said, yeah, I've been there before. It's no big deal. I can take it. So I'm glad because there are some mean-spirited people out there. Good stuff. I look forward to reading it. It will be running on cleveland.com and in the Plain Dealer. And like Layla said, the first installment has been published. It's today in Ohio. That does it for Friday. We hope you have a terrific weekend. And we hope when we're talking on Monday, it's because the Guardians have been mopping up the Yankees. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. (laughs) 